Good morning. Turn with me to First Peter. I'm sorry, Second Peter, chapter one. And I'm going to read through verse fifteen. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you uh, for the chance that you have given us to know you and get to know you more. And I pray that, Lord, you would um, speak to us today, that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say, to understand it, and help us to put it to good use. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm going to ask a question, and that is, um, what does Christian maturity look like, and how do we get it? And this is really a very important question. Um, if, if I was a kid and I didn't have any adults around me teaching me what maturity looked like, I would grow up to be an adult that looked like a kid. <laughs> I acted like a kid. I, I did things like a kid, but yeah, I was an adult. And so often as Christians, if we don't examine Christian maturity, we grow up to be very old baby Christians. And um, that is not at all who God wants us to be. God wants us to grow. We need to grow. So so today, um, we're going to ask a few questions, and that is, what does Christian maturity look like? And how do I reach that maturity as a believer? Another way of putting this is, how do I become an effective and fruitful Christian? Or maybe the negative side, how do I keep myself from being ineffective or from being unfruitful as a believer. And finally, I'm going to ask, why should we want to be a mature Christian anyway? And I hope that's obvious to all of you, but um, Peter gives some really good reasons and motivations for growing in maturity. 
So the, the first question I'm going to ask um, in answering our main question is, who is Peter writing to? And we see in uh, verse 1, he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. Peter's audience are believers that are, they're mature believers. They've obtained a faith that is of equal standing with that of the apostles. Um, uh, these are mature people he's talking to. And um, he says, starting in verse 12, that he intends always to remind them of these qualities, these qualities of mature Christians, even though they know them, even though they're well-established in them. And the purpose here is to ensure that they never forget what mature Christianity looks like. And I think there's a couple important things to note here. Even though he's... Um, He's writing to mature believers, and many of you may not be mature believers. We get a glimpse, first of all, at what mature believers look like. We also get to see that mature believers need reminded daily of the basics of being a mature Christian. You're not exempt from the basics of Christianity based on your maturity level or immaturity level. Uh, everyone has to know this stuff. This is important for everyone. So how is it then, and why is it, that we can mature at all? The first thing we see here is that His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So no notice that life and godliness are impossible without God. God's divine power has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness. That means nothing pertaining to life and godliness has come without God. And if you attempt to become a mature Christian, if you attempt to find Christian maturity without the power of God, you're going to fail. And um, that's a mistake that we fall under so often, is thinking that, well, as a Christian, I, I can do this. I can go do this good thing, or I can stop doing this bad thing, and you know I'm going to grow myself. But uh, a plant in a garden never said to the gardener, I can grow myself. I don't need you to water me. Stop fertilizing me. I've got this taken care of. James said, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. The Bible uses the example of fruit and plants all the time, and I think it's important to grasp this because a plant cannot grow unless it's being tended by some sort of gardener. Um, you know, anyone who's, who's grown food at all or any kind of plants and flowers knows that if you stop watering them, they're going to die. <laughs> um, so if you stop being watered, if you stop being plugged into the vine of Christ, you're going to wither up and die. So and I, I just alluded to this a little bit, but, but how then? How are we granted life and godliness? How has God chosen to give us 
life and godliness. And Peter says it's through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So God has chosen to grant us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the gospel, through Christ. Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So I want you to start asking yourself a few questions. Um, what, what does it mean by knowledge? What, what does Peter mean when he says knowledge? And we'll get, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, because, you know, we, we all think that we're saved through faith. So what does knowledge have to do with it? What does knowledge have to do with faith? How do these two interact? And I want you to be thinking about this as we start going through the text and seeing what Peter, what Peter is saying. So before we get there, um, I want to ask one more question here. What is the result? What is the result of God giving us life and godliness through the gospel? And, and Peter says, by which, this by which, that is by which life and godliness, God has granted to us his precious and very great promises. So that is that because of the gospel, because God has granted us life and godliness through the gospel, we are now in a position to receive God's promises. And uh, this is important to understand as well, that you cannot receive God's promises unless you have first received life and godliness through the power of Christ. And why? Why why has God done all this? Why? It's so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. I'm going to turn over to Romans 8. Verse 1, Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. And then down in verse 12 through 17, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you are, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So this divine nature that we come, become partakers of is that of becoming children of God. We get to partake in the promises that God has given to his divine son, Jesus Christ. We are children of God. We are now slaves to righteousness. We are co-heirs with Christ. And I want you to take a little bit of an 
aside and notice what Peter says about sin. He says that corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Corruption is an intrinsic quality. It's not some extrinsic force out there that's working in the world. Corruption is intrinsic. Corruption is because of sinful desire. So the, the answer to our, our first sub-question of how, uh, how is it that we can grow in our maturity at all is that um, we have been granted the promises of God through the life and godliness that God himself has given us through Jesus Christ, if indeed we have faith, which frees us from sin and makes us righteous children of God and co-heirs of Christ. This is the foundation you have to have if you're going to talk about Christian maturity at all. If you don't have this, then you need to, to get a grasp on the gospel that Jesus Christ came and died to free you from your sin and make you able to be partakers of the promises of God. If you don't understand that, you're not going to be mature as a Christian. You can't. You're not a Christian in the first place. So, so now we get into the main, the main discussion of what does Christian maturity look like and how in the world do we get it. Peter starts off in um, Peter starts off in verse five. He says, "For this very reason, make every effort." And we should stop there. Literally, he's saying, "Work these following qualities that I'm about to list. Work them all together at the same time, with eagerness and diligence." He's saying, "Make this your primary effort. Make every effort." Christian maturity is so important that we should be putting our highest efforts in pursuit of it. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely. And and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So, so what does this look like? How are we running this race? How are we making every effort? And um, Peter uses this word supplement. He's saying supplement your faith with virtue. And then you should fill in the word supplement all the way down. Supplement your virtue with knowledge. Supplement your knowledge with self-control. Supplement your self-control with steadfastness. Supplement your steadfastness with godliness. Supplement your godliness with brotherly affection and supplement your brotherly affection with love. And it's important to to think of this word supplement. We're building on top of each other. Faith is not enough unless you have virtue. And virtue is not enough unless you have knowledge. And we're going to talk about that all the way down. Um, He's saying add virtue to your faith because faith is dead or worthless without it. Faith is the starting place. Without faith, we cannot begin to enter the process of sanctification. Without faith, we have not been granted the promises of God through the life and godliness that God himself has given us through Jesus Christ, which frees us from sin and makes us righteous children of God and co-heirs with Christ. That is, if we have heard the gospel but have not believed, we know the riches of the mercies of God through Jesus Christ. 
but have not faith, we cannot go any farther. But if we do have such faith, we must not stop there. James, again, he says in chapter 2 about faith. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith alone without works is dead. Therefore, we must supplement faith with virtue. That is moral excellence. We must put faith to work and let it grow up in us as a character trait. We must be morally excellent and pure, or we cannot say that we have faith. We must supplement faith with virtue. Virtue is a describing of a moral excellence, a moral behavior that is in line with the law that God has set. And if you claim to be a Christian but don't have these works of virtue in your life, if you don't have these fruits of the Spirit in your life, you can't claim to have faith. But, but virtue is not enough. We have to supplement virtue with knowledge. Virtue must be supplemented with knowledge. What is faith without knowledge? In what do we believe if we have not knowledge? How can we put faith to work if we do not know the works of faith? How can we become virtuous if we do not know the difference between moral purity and moral impurity? We must supplement our faith and virtue with knowledge if we are to mature. That is, we cannot expect to grow in faith or virtue unless we learn what these things look like. This is why knowledge is so important, and this is why Peter uses it um, multiple times throughout this passage, this idea of knowledge, the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have to know what we believe in. We have to know what righteousness looks like and unrighteousness looks like if we're to pursue righteousness at all. Romans 10, 14 says, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they here to hear without someone preaching? Psalm 119, 9 through 11 David says, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. This is why reading your Bible is so important. This is why listening to sermons is so important. This is why talking about Scripture with one another and encouraging one another, sharing what God is doing in your life is so important. Without this knowledge basis, we, we go nowhere. God has given us knowledge, and we can't separate it from faith. Um, we try to a lot. Modern philosophy tries to say that faith is separate from understanding or wisdom. Faith is separate from knowledge. We accept things by faith that we can't prove by knowledge. That's not right. Faith is based on knowledge. And if the word of God is really true, if the word of God is speaking truth and knowledge, then what better thing do we have to base our faith on? What better thing do we have to base 
our hope on, like it says in Hebrews 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not our uh, go-to word for things that we don't know about. Faith is the basis of our hope. Faith is the conviction for the things that we don't see. Not that we don't know about, but the things that we don't see. We believe what we have been told by what has been preached by Jesus Christ, by God's prophets, by God's word. But, but what is knowledge without self-control? Peter's asking this question, what is knowledge without self-control? So supplement your knowledge with self-control. The growing Christian cannot stop at knowledge. He or she must put that knowledge to action. Once knowledge of right and wrong is gained, a Christian must put it to use if he or she is to claim any faith and any virtue. The next step then is self-control. With the knowledge of right and wrong, if a Christian is to continue growing, he or she must exercise self-control, putting off what is unrighteous and donning what is righteous. Self-discipline is vital for the continued growth of any Christian. Paul explains this in his personal life in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If we know what is right, and don't do it. It's a sin for us, James says. We have to put, bring our knowledge and put it to work. And if you might already be noticing almost a circular pattern here, now we're back to faith. We have to believe this knowledge in order to put it to work. And now we're back at knowledge by putting that knowledge and faith to work. And this is a really important thing that you have to grasp that all of these uh, qualities are interdependent, and we'll talk about that more later. But, but if you're going to grow, you have to put that knowledge to work, and you have to do it with self-control. You have to be self-controlled. You have to say no to unrighteousness, and you have to say yes to righteousness. You have to put aside, lay aside all that weight of sin which clings so closely to you, so that way you can actually run with endurance the race that God has set before you. But even self-control is not quite enough to grow us into maturity. We need steadfastness. It's easy enough to be self-controlled in a short moments. It is no difficult task to refrain from what is wrong for a little while and to do what is right for a moment. A faithful, virtuous, knowledgeable, and self-controlled believer must have no part in such temporal righteousness. Rather, he or she must be steadfast. Self-control must extend into every day, every moment, for all time. What worth is there in refraining from sin or doing what is right for only a short time? What is there to be gained by being godly once or twice a week? There's nothing. 
that mature Christian must be steadfast in his self-control. An example uh, recently, since Thanksgiving, um, we've had a cold going through our house, and we've also had lots of sugar in our house. And me, um, I like sugar, and especially ice cream, but I chose to refrain from that over the course of about a week and a half, um, knowing that sugar's not going to help me get better. But as soon as I was better, I was in that freezer getting the ice cream out. That's not steadfastness. That's self-control. I did a great job at self-control. I went a whole week and a half without eating ice cream. But that's not steadfastness. Uh, Another way to think about this is if we think of uh, an adulterer. He's been married for a few years, and he commits adultery, and it's brought to his attention, and he repents of that sin. He repents, and his wife graciously forgives him, and they're able to continue on in their marriage. And, and they grow strong, but five years down the later, he commits adultery again. How much grace do you think his wife is going to be willing to offer him then? This is the second time. And yeah, five years have gone by. It's been a great marriage for five years. But he didn't exercise steadfastness. He exercised self-control, but not steadfastness. This is why James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may become perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is almost the pinnacle of of maturity, and that is steadfastness. If you want to be a perfect Christian, if you want to be lacking in nothing as a Christian, be steadfast. Both negatively and positively, be steadfast in putting off unrighteousness, and be steadfast in putting on unrighteousness. I mean, putting on righteousness. The sins of omission are most often committed and some of the worst that we could commit. The sins of not doing what is right even though we know it is the right thing to do. We have to be steadfast in clothing ourselves in righteousness. But let's let's go even farther and supplement your steadfastness with godliness. A believer must grow to be godly. This quality of the Christian growth is very much a goal of the previous five qualities as well as the result. If an individual is exercising faith, showing virtue, demonstrating knowledge, and acting steadfastly in self-control, but shows no godliness in the end, for what has he been striving? What is the point of making every effort if it is not godliness, if it is not to be holy as God himself is holy? A mature Christian must be striving for holiness, running toward godliness. And the means by which he does this is by carrying out the first five qualities that Peter mentions while looking toward the goal of sanctification. In First Peter, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
If we make every effort to carry out, to supplement our faith with virtue and our virtue with knowledge and our knowledge with self-control and our self-control with steadfastness, but we do not look to the goal of godliness, if we're not striving after holiness, we're running the grace, we're running the race looking at the ground. We're running the race watching the flowers go by. We're not focused and looking ahead and we'll ultimately lose. Hebrews makes it clear that we have to run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus. If not, what are we running for? Where are we running? How do you know you're running to Christ if you're not looking to him? So lift up your head and look straight ahead. Run that race, looking to Jesus. Making godliness your goal. Making holiness the point of it all. But supplement your your godliness with brotherly affection. We have to ask the question, what does godliness look like? What is this godliness? Is godliness alone enough? Weren't the Pharisees godly? Didn't Paul adhere to every tenet of the Torah? And yet these people were found lacking. Godliness has to have brotherly love. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is from John chapter 4. If you claim to love God, if you claim to be a Christian, if you have faith, if you have virtue, if you have knowledge and self-control, if you're steadfast and you have godliness, but you do not love your brother, you are a liar. John makes it clear that it's just that simple. You're a liar if you claim to be a Christian and do not love God. But Peter says that brotherly love is not even enough. You have to supplement brotherly love or brotherly affection with love. And if at first you might think this is kind of strange, we're supplementing love with love. How do you do that? <laughs> um, let me read to you 1 Corinthians 13, or part of it. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Love is the pinnacle of Christian maturity. Without love, all other qualities of Christian maturity fall worthless. If in the end a Christian has all faith, 
unsurpassed moral excellence, all knowledge, self-control, and steadfastness, godliness, and even brotherly affection. But no love, he has missed the mark. It's absolutely necessary, then, that a Christian love in faith, in virtue, in knowledge, in self-control, in steadfastness, in godliness, and in brotherly affection. It's easy to love your brother. Or maybe not your brother, but rather your friend. We see that in the world all the time. People loving people. But not everyone. They love certain people. They love whom they choose to love. Jesus said that the world will know us by our love. That's a, a love for for everyone around us, a brotherly affection, and our love for the world, that we show the world, that our love that walks up to people and proclaims the, the grace that God has given them through the gospel. We can't just love people that we like. That's not, that's not what love is about. We can't just love people who are nice to us. That's not the love of Christ. That's the love of self. That's loving people because it makes me feel good. Jesus came and died for people who rebelled against him. Jesus came and died for people who were dirty and wicked. Jesus reached down into the filth and grabbed us up. Justice would have it that we would all be lifted up out of that pit and thrown into the pit of hell. But Jesus came and took that punishment for us on our behalf. He didn't deserve any part of that. That's what love is. We have to supplement our brotherly affection with this kind of Christ-like love. Or in the end, we're just going to be proved to be selfish. In the end, we will show that we have faith, we have virtue, we have knowledge, we have self-control and steadfastness and godliness and brotherly affection. Only for ourselves, only because we're selfish. That is, we're running this race looking to ourselves or looking to some reward that we think we can get. The only reward for such people is a room in hell. So, so I hope now that you've got a glimpse at, at what Christian maturity looks like. And a little bit about how we get there. But, but why? Why do, why do we want to be a Christian? This sounds like a lot of work to me. And by the way, I thought that we were saved by faith, not by work anyway. So why are we doing all this stuff? Peter offers up three reasons that, that we should be motivated to do these things. The first is a positive reason in verse 8. He says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to be an effective Christian, if you want to bear fruit, or even if you're a Christian, you're thinking about your life and you're saying, I am an ineffective Christian already. I don't bear fruit. 
This is what you have to do. You have to grow these qualities. These qualities have to grow in you. So start believing in the gospel. Start supplementing that faith with virtue and that virtue with knowledge. Start reading your Bible. Start reading sermons. Start listening to sermons. Start surrounding yourself with knowledgeable Christians. And put that knowledge to self-control. Defeat the power of sin in your life. But be steadfast about it. And make your goal godliness. But not just godliness, godliness with brotherly affection. Godliness that results in love for those around you. And godliness with love. Peter also gives us a negative reason. And that is forever... For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you do not have these qualities, if these qualities are not increasing in your life, if they're not working out in you, you almost might as well not have been a Christian in the first place. You're blind, completely blinded. You've forgotten what Christ did for you. And maybe that is you today, and I would encourage you to come back. Remember where God brought you from. Remember what God has done in your life. And start down this road of Christian maturity. And Peter gives another reason um, that we should be motivated, and that is hope. He says, therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we have to look forward to. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God. If you want to dwell in the house of the Lord forever, then this is what you need to do. You need to grow in these things. You need to confirm your calling and election. You need to make sure that these qualities are growing in your life. You need to have other believers help you make sure that these qualities are growing in your life. Because the reward of living with Christ for all eternity and worshiping before his throne is just that good. In conclusion, I'd like to um, give you a couple clarifications. These qualities are not sequential steps. I'm not giving you the five-step plan for becoming a better Christian. Like I said earlier, all of these qualities are interdependent. Let me explain. Faith cannot be had without virtue. But guess what? Virtue cannot be had unless you have faith. Faith cannot be had without knowledge. But you can't have knowledge unless you have faith. Therefore, virtue cannot be had without knowledge. And knowledge cannot be had without virtue. And none of these qualities can be had without love. They're all interdependent. You have to grow them up all at the same time. You can't say, oh, well, today I'm going to grow a leaf and tomorrow I'm going to grow a root. 
you have to grow them both at once. Like I said earlier, Peter's very literal, the very literal way of saying make every effort is work these following qualities together at the same time. They have to be working all at the same time. You have to see faith growing up and virtue at the same time that you're seeing godliness grow up, at the same time that you're seeing love grow up in your life. The next warning or clarification I would give you is that these qualities cannot be gained by works. Here, this whole time I've been telling you, this is what you need to do. Go out and do these things. But guess what? You can't unless you have Christ. Recall from above that Christian maturity is only possible by the power of God through Christ. That the manner in which we are to run with endurance the race is by looking to Jesus. It's his divine power that has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It's the work of Christ that enables us to receive God's promises so we cannot begin to think That, oh, all I have to do to be a mature Christian is just carry out these steps and do these things. You're going to fail, and you're going to fail tragically. You'll be one of those people who get to heaven, and you say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus looks at you and says, I never knew you. And you say, but didn't I do all these things in your name? He says, I never knew you. Depart. The power of the Holy Spirit has to be working these things in our life. You can't do them. You can't work them out. And it's a mystery how your your will to do these things can be integrated with the power of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to go into that. But... Nevertheless, you have to submit yourself to the Holy Spirit. Um, Paul said in Galatians 5, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Turn on your ear. Listen to what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do, and do it. Listen for the guidance of the Holy Spirit. When you open up the Word of God, when you open up your Bible to read it, ask God to teach you what's there. When you wake up in the morning, ask God to help you do the things of God that day. Knowing that you cannot do them on your own volition. Philippians 1.6 says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. When we, when we get to heaven, when Christ comes back, when we stand before that throne, we won't be able to say, look at what I did for you, God. We'll say, look at what Christ did in me. God began the work and God's going to finish it. Don't think that you can finish what God started. You can't. You're not capable of it. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, 
both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And again, we find this almost paradox of this is what you need to do, but guess what? God's doing it. So don't think that you can gain Christian maturity by your works, by your volition. Submit to God. And the final warning or clarification that I would give you is that these qualities are gradual. You can't gain Christian maturity in a few years. You're going to spend your whole life doing it. And Christian maturity requires, believe it or not, steadfastness. You have to be steadfast in it. You have to be steadfast until the day you die. Note that in the verse from Philippians that I read above, um, that he who began a good work in you will bring it into completion. When? At the day of Jesus Christ. Not tomorrow. Not next year. Not by the end of this year. This can't be your New Year's resolution. I'm going to be a mature Christian by this time next year. You have to set your goal as, I'm going to be a mature Christian by the power of God on the day of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back, whenever that is, it could be tomorrow. It might be 5,000 years from now. So let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Again, we come back to this idea of self-control versus steadfastness. We can't just run with self-control. We have to run with steadfastness. We have to pace ourselves. Knowing that the goal is far away. And, and let that be encouraging to you too. Because a year down the road, you might look at your life and over the year and say, I haven't grown that much. That's okay. Have you grown a little bit? That's good. God is working in you. You don't have to grow by leaps and bounds to be growing. You don't have to see so much fruit on your tree that you're falling over. One or two apples is fine. Just keep bearing fruit. Keep working out these qualities in your life. Keep letting God work these qualities out in your life. Run with endurance. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that you have given us to work these qualities out in our life. Father, I pray that you would work this out in each person here. Lord, supplement their faith with virtue and their virtue with knowledge and their knowledge with self-control and their self-control with steadfastness and their steadfastness with brotherly affection and godliness and their brotherly affection with love. Lord, grow them into mature Christians. And if there's anyone here, Lord, who does not know you, if there's anyone in you, in this room, Lord, who has not received your great and precious promises, I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in their hearts. Lord, that you would bring them to salvation even today, because today is the day of salvation. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.